Welcome everyone. We thought we'd give the Cape Tonians a bit of time to get through Galulis. I believe it's quite difficult, but uh, we seem to have filled the room. So thanks very much for your patience in, in starting off. Um, hopefully you've had enough caffeine to sustain you through the morning. Welcome to the Retirement Matters Pension Conference for 2012. Um, the reason for this conference is really the pension, pensions industry is facing a pretty tough time around the world. We just need to look at the sort of current press to sort of see that uh, Spain is, is the next one of the um, pigs to be struggling. Uh, we're well aware of the fact that uh, the Greeks are probably going to have to exit the EU and please spare Costa all the jokes. He's well aware of all of them. We have a South African culture of very low savings. In South Africa, we also have high unemployment, particularly amongst the youth, who probably will never get jobs and so probably will be reliant on the state um, in old age, and there's a big demographic time bomb coming in that regard. We have very low preservation rates. We're faced with increasing longevity, which tends to be ignored a little in South Africa. And we probably face even more regulation, given there are concerns in terms of what this industry has been able to deliver to its clients. And so I thought it was worth just asking a quick question in terms of what you as the audience think are the great, greatest questions or greatest risks that are facing savers in South Africa? Is it that we'll have some sort of asset crash? Is it that we're going to have a sort of Japan scenario where we'll have benign returns for an extended period? Is it longevity and the fact that we haven't really properly understood that, that challenge? Or is it that we could face or have faced inappropriate regulation? Okay. And I think that's quite interesting because I don't see too many people in the press talking about the sort of Japan-type scenario, uh, which probably means that as actuaries, we need to get out there and we need to have people understand what lower real returns means in the sort of savings environment. And certainly, that's something that Megan will be touching on a little later. So given all of these risks that are facing savers around the world and savers in South Africa in particular, that was the idea in terms of the focus of today's conference was how do we as actuaries prepare our clients and prepare the rest of South Africans for the challenges that face them in terms of providing for an adequate re retirement. As, as a broad generalization, I think as actuaries we're all risk averse and we're really good at spotting risk and running away from it. And so the challenge that, that faces us is that we're aware of all of these risks and how do we appropriately equip our clients to deal with these. And so that's why I think it's great that we have Clem Santer as our keynote speaker. People should hopefully be very familiar with who Clem is. And as a quick question to sort of test, the next question, please. When it comes to business, do you have a mind of a fox? Are you a hedgehog? Or do you have no idea what I'm talking about? People would probably stereotype us all as hedgehogs anyway. If you're going to answer three, the really good news is that there are books on sale outside. <laughs> Clem has signed a couple. He will be around <laughs> to sign even more. So... If you, would, if you enjoy the speech and you have no idea what we're talking about, please do sort of pick up the book on your way out. All right, so a third of the audience, Clem, <laughs> will hopefully be buying your book after your speech. Feel no pressure. And so much for my um, assertion that as sort of stereotypically we'd be considered as hedgehogs. I first became aware of Clem in the late 80s when he came to talk at our school in terms of the high and the low road scenarios for South Africa. And was on the back of working for Anglo-American um, in partnership with some people from Royal Dutch Shell that they created a robust process um, which was scenario planning. And there have been a number of iterations of that scenario planning that have come through over time. 
um, and part of that process will be really useful and hopefully in going through that process we'll be able to sort of understand how we can apply that in, in what it is that we do. Um, Clem is hopefully well known to all of you but a long servant of Anglo-American culminating as the CEO and the chairman of the gold and the uranium divisions. He also had a long stint as, as chairman of the, the Anglo-American Chairman's Fund. He has written 14 books, a couple of those sort of available to us, and certainly hasn't had a quiet retirement, has continued with a lot of his scenario planning work with Chantal Ilbury, um, and has gone to some pretty cool places around the world, including speaking to the Central Party School in um, Beijing. So has, has the opportunity to go around and speak to some pretty important people, and will hopefully share some of those insights with us. Um, he's married, has one daughter and two sons, and his hobbies include music and golf. He sort of said to me that in his past, he was in a rock band, and he sang alongside the Rolling Stones, which is why he's very comfortable with the mic in his hand. Over to you, Clem. Good morning, everybody. What is, what, what is a good thing is that 31% uh, of you don't know what a hedgehog or a fox is, so that means there's potential. <laughs> I do like this, ask the audience. It's, it's nice. You know, I do watch Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, so if I tricky things, I, I'll ask you. <laughs> and indeed, yeah, I played in a, a rock band uh, from about 58 to 65, and uh, we played all over the UK. Uh, we were just a genuine dance rock band, but we had all the mega groups as cabarets. And in July 64, we had the Stones. And uh, the one guy in the Stones who was really nice, the rest were dreadful, uh, was Keith Richard. He's, he's a fantastic guy. So if you haven't read his biography, you should. Because, uh, yeah, he's exactly the same age as me. He's been on more trips. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but, yeah. I want to do three things. I want to go through the methodology uh, of thinking like uh, a fox about the future. I want to secondly uh, go through the latest global economic scenarios which concern all of us. And then thirdly, look at how the methodology applies to South Africa. I guess the story starts in the year 2000. I'd completed about 20 years of scenario planning at Anglo as the head of, its, uh, of the discipline. Uh, we'd had a lot of success in the mid-80s with our high-road and low-road political scenarios for South Africa. And I was sent a thesis by a young student at UCT called Chantal Ilbury, who is doing an executive MBA um, at the Graduate School of Business. And she wanted me to give her comments before she submitted it to her professor. And she said two things in the thesis which really resonated with me. The first was that it was far too intellectual and abstract a process to become a proper management tool, and I could vouch for that in the early 80s when I used to go to London to compare the Anglo scenarios with the Shell scenarios. I used to go to the Shell offices overlooking the Thames, and when I asked for the scenario planning team, the concierge would say, you mean the priests of the Nile? <laughs> so they were sort of considered apart from operational management in, in Shell. Um, and she said, you've got to operationalize the process. You've got to look for the flags which would suggest that you're moving from one scenario to another. It's no good just giving people different possible futures. You've got to see what would indicate that you're moving into that possible future. And then based on whether the flag is up or down, you've got to start giving probabilities, not just saying something's more likely or less likely, but subjective probabilities 
uh, to the scenario. I have to say that two weeks ago I had some of the top minds from MIT here who really like our methodology and they say they're going to construct a mathematical model linking the raising of the flag to the probability of the scenario. We simply haven't got the mathematical far, far power uh, to do that. The second thing she said was that you can't just play scenarios. That's daydreaming. You've got to look at the impact of the scenarios on your business or yourself. And then you've got to decide, based on the probability of the scenario and the impact, whether you're going to do something now or whether you're going to have a contingency plan about the opportunities and the threats offered by the scenario and what the optimum strategy is to cope with them. So I said to Chantel, this is great stuff. We must write a book together. It took us five months, and we published it in June 2001, and we called it The Mind of a Fox. And we chose that title because of a Greek poet called Archilochus, who in 650 BC wrote the following line. The hedgehog knows one big thing, whereas the fox knows many little things. Now, why he chose those animals, heaven only knows, and he's been dead a long time. But we just felt it was a lovely way to contrast our technique of looking at the future with what was being recommended in management textbooks at the time. Because to this day, and anybody who's read Good to Great by Jim Collins will attest to this, the approach recommended is that you should have a vision for your business, which is the hedgehog big idea, support it with a mission statement, align everybody, and march collectively towards the vision. Now that's fine as long as the future assumed in the vision is more or less correct. But if the future goes off in that direction, when you're marching all the troops in this direction, you can lead them over the edge of a cliff, <laughs> which is where the foxes come in. Foxes are people who naturally will not bet on a single idea. They constantly <laughs> hold different ideas in mind, different scenarios. They watch the environment to see how it's changing. And as the environment changes, they change their minds about possibilities. They're much more flexible. And it's the speed and quality of their response to the changes in the environment that allows them to survive. And what we argue is that any company should really have visionary hedgehogs and contrarian foxes, so that the contrarian foxes will actually keep uh, the visionary hedgehogs honest. <laughs> and Whilst this argument was, I guess, not very popular uh, up to 2008, since the great financial crash of 2008, I think we've had the upper hand with foxes. And if, in fact, you Google hedgehogs and foxes, you'll see that we are ahead of Jim Collins, <laughs> uh, who has a chapter called The Hedgehog Concept uh, in, in Good to Grain. So that's why... Uh, we wrote the book. To begin with, it wasn't successful, but then something happened which turned it into an overnight hit. And it was the best-selling book of any title in South Africa in 2002. And in 2003, it was number two because Harry Potter uh, was number one. So what was the event? Well, the event was 9-11 because what we decided to do in the book was publish a letter we'd written to George Bush when he first became president of the United States. And in the letter, we said that part of his legacy as president would be determined by the speed and quality of his response to certain extreme futures that would come his way. And we nominated as his number one extreme future, a massive terrorist strike on an American city, which would completely transform his presidency and possibly lead America into a gilded cage where they shut themselves off from the rest of the world. And it happened three months after we published the book. Thank heavens we didn't get it exactly right. We didn't have planes flying into buildings. If we had, I wouldn't be here. Uh, I'd be in Cuba. <laughs> uh, 
we talked to somebody planting a nuclear device uh, and, and nuclear terrorism in the, in the letter. You can read it on our website. Uh, but where we got it right, and this is something which I guess talking to a, a bunch of actuaries uh, is one of the most important things that I can tell you, is in the flags that we identified to give that uh, the number one ranking uh, in our threats. Uh, we had three flags. First was the growing confrontation between the major religions of the world in the early 90s, particularly Islam, Christianity, and Judaism. The second was the reorganization and re-equipping of organizations which were dedicated to the downfall of America in the mid-90s in places like Afghanistan and Saudi Arabia under Bill Clinton's watch. And the third, and probably the biggest flag for us, was the two attacks on American embassies in Africa, one in Tanzania and the other in Kenya in 1998 by Al-Qaeda, which we felt was um, a prelude for the real thing in America. And we've always thought that if we presented our scenarios to the security agencies in June 2001, they might have re-perceived some of the genuine flags that they were being given that we simply didn't know about. I mean, it came out in the congressional inquiry after 9-11 that there was a young lady in the FBI who went to her boss on six occasions and said, boss, there's a flying school down the road where Arabs are learning to take off but not land. <laughs> Big clue, but it was ignored by Americans because they simply felt Arabs were too incompetent to attack Americans on American soil, which is precisely the kind of hedgehog idea that foxes will interrogate by offering different scenarios. And if they'd actually followed up on that flag, they could have closed 9-11 down because two of the suicide pilots went to that school. So we couldn't have had our technique verified in a more dramatic fashion than that. Uh, the White House, we were told, bought 10 copies of our book. <laughs> the one person to quote from it uh, was Donald Rumsfeld, of all people, uh, when he talked of the known unknowns and the unknown unknowns in Iraq, which was precisely the categories that we gave uh, to uncertainties um, in our book. Um, and so overnight, we became um, sort of celebrities in the, in, in, in the U.S. We've done 650 sessions since then uh, where we expose organizations to fairly extreme scenarios, and then we ask them how would they respond if these scenarios materialize. Probably the most fruitful session I did was in China, when I was invited by the Chinese Communist Party uh, in April 2006 to help them stress test their five-year uh, five plan. It was their 11th plan. And so we looked at fairly extreme scenarios, and including an American crash scenario, and, and then how they would respond. And in retrospect, it was much better to go through the sequence of decisions of expanding the internal economy of China in 2006 than waiting for it to happen in 2008. We've written two further books. Our second book we call Games Foxes Play because we like to also ask people when we do sessions with them, what are the flags that could actually change your game in business? And I'd like to give you just a couple of examples. Uh, recently, I was asked in London to do a session with one of the largest credit card companies in the world. And they had the founder of the M-Pesa system in Kenya um, at uh, this session. And I was you know, mystified as to why he had been uh, asked until he started talking about the system, whereby you can use your cell phone as an electronic wallet in Kenya 
you can have your wages credited to yourself. Eh? Uh, you can pay in a normal retail store by just swiping your cell phone, uh, which reduces, obviously, your credit balance. You can transmit funds to distant relatives in other countries by SMSing uh, cash to them. It's the most incredible system, and it really has taken off in Kenya. And, of course, what this credit card company was thinking is, could it actually become huge in the United States? Because then, of course, the credit card will go the way of the check. <laughs> You'll never use it. <laughs> And, and obviously, they were then thinking of what kind of strategy they could adopt in a scenario like that. The other example of a flag was in Australia when I was uh, doing a session in Perth. And I walked into a men's outfitters, and I looked at the suits, and the assistant dashed over to me and said, it'll cost you $25 to try on that suit. That's 200 rand. Well, in fact, it's more than that because uh, the Aussie dollar is quite strong. And I said to him, you're kidding. He said, I'm not kidding. He said, most Australians now come in, try on my shoots and, uh, suits and buy the exact replica off the internet uh, for 20 to 30% cheaper. So I've redefined my role from being a clothing shop to a trying on shop. <laughs> and yeah, uh, you've got to look at the flags which could change your game just as much as you should look at the flags which can change um, the external environment. And obviously, in your case... Uh, with pension funds, the game has hugely changed in the sense that in the 80s and 90s, you know, it was more or less certain that you could grow uh, the capital value uh, of your pension fund, whereas now uh, it is not nearly as certain, and particularly in, in the form of uh, interest rates that you receive, uh, they're nothing like what they were 10 to 20 years ago. So, your game has actually been turned upside down. And the question is, do all your customers understand um, how that has actually happened? The third book we called Socrates and the Fox because we find the best method to use to extract people's ideas about the future is the Socratic method. Because if Socrates was alive today, he wouldn't have asked you, what's your budget? What are your targets? He would have said, why do you exist? And is there anything happening out there to undermine the reason for your existence? And this has become a sharp question in light of the recession. Because one of the biggest changes in consumer behavior is towards value for money and the cheaper alternative. And where companies offer that, they've actually done pretty well in these tough economic times. But where they haven't, uh, they've, they've actually started going to the war. I mean... I did a session with uh, Mr. Price in Durban the other day, and one of the managers said, there's no such thing as a high net worth housewife left in South Africa. So they all come to Mr. Price with their Edgar's bags <laughs> and fill up. And in fact, Mr. Price has done extremely well. It's grown its profits at least 20% per annum since 2008. So is Spar International, because Spar International has a brand uh, for value for money. Um, Checkers is now worth, ShopRite Checkers is now worth three times uh, pick and pay. Um, and it's because ShopRite Checkers is also seen as a very powerful uh, value for money brand. So you really have to question your existence and whether you have to adapt what you're doing in order to re-energize the, the purpose uh, for which you are being paid. But I'd like to now talk about our latest global scenarios for clients, because that really shows you how the technique uh, works. 
We're currently offering three global scenarios, uh, sorry, four global scenarios to our clients. Two favorites, what we call mainstream scenarios, and two outsiders, uh, because we want to explore the cone of uncertainty opening up into the future. The first scenario we offer them we call hard times, a classic no growth, flat line scenario for the next 5, 10, 15, or even 20 years. And the example we quote to our clients is Japan. I mean, I remember in September 1988, uh, we had an Anglo scenario session at a pub in England called the Spread Eagle Inn in Midhurst in Sussex. We chose pubs because scenario planners think more creatively about the future when they're slightly intoxicated. <laughs> and we had the best futurist in the world in uh, our team, a guy called Pierre Wack. He was a Frenchman who was in charge of the uh, scenario planning team at Shell. He was married to a Japanese wife, and he said, and I always remember this, at the beginning of the session, September 1988, the flags have gone up on Japan. Now, we all thought about Japan the way everybody thinks about China now. It's unstoppable. So we said to Pierre, what are the flags? The first flag, he said, is declining golf club membership in Tokyo. <laughs> now, the reason I'd like to quote that to you is a flag isn't obvious. It's, it's sometimes a sort of out-of-the-box kind of flag. So he said, why, Pierre? He said, look, people love their golf in Tokyo. They pay a lot of money to play golf, and they're resigning. And it means that something's happening to their disposable income, which isn't being captured by the media. And that combined with the astronomic property values in Japan in 1988, at the time the Emperor's Palace in Tokyo was worth more than the entire state of California. He said means there's going to be a property crash next year, and that is going to drag Japan right down. The second flag, he said, is a long-term flag, and it's one that was alluded to earlier. He said it's the demographic flag. He said the Japanese are about to enter a geriatric boom. <laughs> They're aging. Uh, so, yes, good for selling walking sticks and hearing aids, <laughs> but not for um, other uh, products. And he said that demographic flag means that when they have the crash next year, they're not going to have a V, they're not going to have a U, they're going to have an L. <laughs> he said an endless L. <laughs> and you know what? He captured in two minutes flat the next 23 years of Japan, because Japan has never gone belong one p above 1% economic growth, having grown at 7 to 8% for 20 years. In the 70s and the 80s, they've come down and they're sitting at 1% or less. And that is despite the same kind of easy monetary policies that are being applied in America and, and Europe. They're on QE 23, <laughs> uh, as opposed to QE 2 or 3 or twist 1 or twist 2. They've even had negative interest rates in Japan, where you pay to have your money on deposit at a bank. Um, it hasn't worked. Uh, and so it's, it's been an extraordinarily powerful example of just what demographics can do to, uh, to your economic prospects. And if you think Japan is in a bad state, Europe is terrible. I mean, if you put a roof over an English village, it's an old age home. LAUGHTER um, Italy has a declining population. Remarkable for a Roman Catholic country, but there you go. Um, 
It's the third slowest growing economy in the world over the last 10 years. Only Haiti and Zimbabwe have grown slower uh, than Italy. So demographics has an enormous impact on the long-term uh, economic prospects of individual countries. And of course, Europe equally has this mountain of debt which we talk about uh, every day. So the idea that Europe can go through a sort of flat line for 20 years is not out of sight at all. In fact, it's our favorite scenario um, at the moment. And yes, there will be differential economic growth rates, and Germany will probably do better than the rest because they're still a world-class export, exporter, um, and the euro is cheap. But uh, yeah, it's not good. And I remind people that Europe is the biggest economy in the world, if you take it as a collective. It's bigger than America. It's an 18 to $20 trillion economy. America's a $15 trillion economy. So that's our number one scenario. And we say to our clients, you better start thinking of what the optimum strategy is. Because if you are unintelligent, you won't just swing along like you did in the 90s. You will die. And I think the latest examples of potential deaths are Nokia <laughs> and RIM, uh, Research in Motion. Uh, they could be extinct in the next uh, few years because they simply haven't come up with an adequate uh, response uh, to Apple and Samsung. Um, another com company which the flag's gone up on is Peugeot. Uh, they're just closing their largest factory outside Paris, shedding 8,000 jobs when VW is expanding uh, its sales uh, in Europe. So the, the outcome of this scenario is that the difference between winners and losers is going to widen hugely. And we've already seen it in the last 10 years, which is why I say to people who are in the investment game, don't buy indices, <laughs> because indices average the winners with the losers. And if you look at the Standard & Poor's 500 index, it was 1,500 in March 2000, and now it is 1,350. So if you'd bought the index, you would have lost money over the last uh, 10 years in America. You'd have made money out of the dividends, uh, but you'd have lost it on the capital. If you'd managed to pick Apple and a few other shares, you'd have multiplied your money five times. Uh, but equally, if you'd chosen Microsoft, you'd have actually lost 20% of your capital in the last 10 years. So stock picking has again become a hugely important game. So if you're not a stock picker yourself, <laughs> you've got to find <laughs> the ones that are because it makes a huge difference now to be able to separate potential winners from potential uh, losers. And I'm afraid to say the other obvious consequence of this game is no time soon uh, are interest rates um, going to climb. Um, yes, we may see renewed inflation, um, which will compel them to climb, but it doesn't seem to be around at the present uh, moment. The other mainstream favorite scenario that we play, we call ultraviolet. It's a UV scenario. It's where the old world economies like Europe, Japan, America, go through that flat line experience for five years or more. And the new world economies like China, India, Africa, and South America have a V-like recovery and grow at least three times faster than the old world economies. And I have to say, in our recent 
uh, facilitation of multinational companies. It is their favorite scenario. And it is why American companies are now all over South Africa and other countries in Africa like a rash. I mean, I did a session with Kraft Foods the other day, which is the second largest uh, food company in the world after Nestle. Uh, they bought Cadbury's a couple of years ago. And uh, we did it up at the Legends Golf Resort in the Limpopo province. And uh, we had the African Awards evening uh, for their distributors in Africa um, at the end of the session. The guy who won the overall award was an Angolan who tripled chewing gum consumption in Angola in the last two years. Now, whether that was one to three people, I don't know. But uh, you'd never achieve that result in America these days. Uh, most of their award winners had managed to grow cheese product sales by at least 60 to 70% in places like Ghana, Nigeria, Kenya, um, Mozambique, Rwanda. Yeah, and, and yeah, in, in that second sort of two-speed world, chasing the V becomes the priority of most companies. I mean, SAB Miller, if you look to their last quarterly results, the largest growth in sales in U.S. dollar terms in the world that they had was in Africa. <laughs> not in China, not in America, not in Europe, in Africa. So there has been a complete re-evaluation of Africa as a market as a result of the ultraviolet scenario. Now, our flag for really judging whether we're in hard times or whether we're in uh, ultraviolet is China and China's economic growth rate. If China continues at 8 to 10% per annum, then we are in uh, the two-speed ultraviolet world. If China slips below 5%, uh, we are in hard times for everybody. And we went more negative on China about six months ago. Uh, so our current probabilities are 40% for hard times and 30% for the ultraviolet scenario. The two reasons we've gone more negative on China are, number one, they export 38% of their GDP compared to 10% for the U.S. and 14% for Japan. And exporting into a flat Europe is not good for China's growth prospects. The second thing is there's a lot of unoccupied property in tier two cities in China. Not in Shanghai and Beijing, but in all those other cities of 15 to 20 million people that you cannot remember the name of. I mean, I visited one called Shifeng in Inner Mongolia uh, in 2006 when I did this session with the Communist Party. And there was an entire suburb that was empty. They built schools, they built roads, they built hospitals, uh, flats, huge blocks of flats, and there wasn't a single person in the suburb. It was one living thing. It was a Land Rover agency. <laughs> uh, but other than that, nothing. And yeah, now there are lots of cities in China with empty suburbs financed by uh, bank loans to municipalities. And that really could mean a sort of property sell-off uh, in the way that occurred in Japan in 1989. So that's why, at the moment, we give slightly higher odds to our hard times than to our ultraviolet scenario. But, of course, you can have a similar strategy. Uh, you don't, there's nothing contradictory between the two scenarios. You can offer value for money if it's hard times, but you can chase the V if it's ultraviolet. You can pursue both at the same time. What are our outsiders? Well, the extremely positive scenario is where we're all wrong, and Ben Bernanke 
with his cheap monetary policy is right, and the U.S. recovers next year. And we call that scenario, new balls, please. <laughs> if you've watched Wimbledon, uh, like you know, a few weeks ago, you get new balls when the old ones have worn out. And we just think that companies will require new balls in the recovery scenario because the game is going to be so completely different for two reasons. Number one, the East will be the economic equivalent to the West, which is huge since the West has dominated the global economy for centuries, so you'll have to have a more balanced marketing strategy. But number two, and even more important, is that the world is finally running out of resources. And as a friend of mine said, there is no planet B. <laughs> I mean, just one statistic. If China ever reaches American standard of living, you need four planets. <laughs> Well, there isn't four planets. So it means the resource prices will go through the roof if, uh, the, uh, if, if the global economy recovers. In fact, we tested out an, an energy consultant in London who's known for their accuracy of prediction, and they said oil prices could hit $500 a barrel uh, in the uh, recovery scenario, and that would change our lives. I mean, suddenly freight becomes expensive, uh, transport of any kind becomes expensive. Uh, we'll probably shop at uh, local 7-Elevens rather than going distant shopping malls. And then things like solar energy and wind power and other alternative energy sources become very economical. So it offers huge opportunities and huge threats, that scenario. It's a wonderful one to explore with companies. And we at the moment give it a 10% probability because our principal flag is that American unemployment falls to somewhere between 7 and 7.5% seven to indicate that the largest national economy in the road is in recovery. Well, it's 8.2% at the moment. It's been stubbornly high. It's fallen from 9.5, but it's got a long way to go to get to between 7 and 7.5, seven and which is what American economists believe is when you say America's in a recovery mode. The second flag is a flattening out of their national debt to GDP ratio but America is still running a 10% budget deficit, um, and so their national debt is climbing. And so is Europe's uh, national debt climbing, because governments still haven't got on top uh, of their financial um, affairs. The last scenario is the one we all dread, a double dip. <laughs> the worst is yet to come. We call it forked lightning. <laughs> it's where you go down, you have a recovery, and then you seriously crash. And there is an example, 1932. Everybody talks of the Wall Street crash in 29. It didn't. It went down in 29. It recovered in 30 and 31. And then it crashed in 32. It went down to 11% of its peak value in 1929. If you take that particular figure, it would mean the Dow Jones falling from its value last night of 12,600 to 1,500 and Americans losing somewhere between 80 and 90% of the value of their investments uh, on the stock exchange. Now, that is a catastrophe. So we asked the best American fund managers, is it a viable scenario? What are the flags? They all said it's a viable scenario, and they all gave us two flags. <laughs> so they were amazingly consistent. The first flag, they said, is the interest rate on American 10-year treasury bonds, because that is the best way of judging foreign confidence in America. Well, American treasuries are at record lows at 1.45% um, at the moment. They've got to go to 4 to 5% for one to start getting queasy. However, 60% of the 
of American treasuries issued at the moment are bought by the Fed. I mean, that is an amazing figure. Uh, the average for the last five years is 11% uh, purchases by treasuries. Uh, now they're purchasing 60% of the treasuries issued in the United States. Uh, so they're artificially keeping the rate low. But of course, with the risks of the euro, people are buying uh, dollar, dollar bonds. But the second flag they gave <laughs> is the one that's actually rising, which is why we give double the probability to this scenario. We give it a 20% probability at the moment. Because their second flag was a default by either Italy or Spain. They said European banks have actually written off Greek debt. It's, it's, it's no longer a problem. They've taken the 50% haircut. In fact, they've taken more than a 50% haircut in their books. I love that word, haircut. <laughs> I lend you money uh, when you're a fantastic uh, borrower, triple A status. But when you can't repay me, I have to have a haircut. <laughs> um, anyway. Um, they said if Italy or Spain um, had to ask for a 50% haircut, the European banking system overnight would collapse. And, and I actually did a session two weeks ago in Switzerland with the European banks on the future of the euro. Um, it's at a place called Lake Constance. It's the UBS uh, trading facilities. And we had the senior guys from all over Europe to discuss the scenarios. And when I put this forward, they said, absolutely. We have so much, so much uh, Greek, uh, Italian and Spanish bonds that we would simply have to go the Northern Rock route uh, or the Lloyds route, where essentially governments would have to take 80% equity in our banks in order for us to continue. So here we are. I mean, Spanish bonds are at a record rate. So we're right on the precipice of this scenario. And it will be very interesting to see what happens over the next few days. Because the figures quoted of what Spain needs now are extraordinary. I mean, another bailout. They've already got 100 billion euro. They're asking for another 150 billion euro. I mean, you know, eventually the Germans are going to get fed up. <laughs> uh, nine. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah. Um, we give that scenario a 20% probability. And what we say to people is, just keep your financial affairs fairly conservative because once the lightning starts, there's nothing you can do. You can just go indoors. <laughs> and, and so, you know, we're just saying to people, be cautious about taking on large borrowings at the moment because, you know, we do give a 20% probability uh, to this scenario. And it would be like 2008. As long as you're reasonably conservative, you will survive uh, that particular second crash. But... For you as actuaries, it's, it's, it's incredibly important that you start working out what you do in order to you know, cope with the kind of mayhem that would eventuate from this. What are you going to say to all your uh, pensioners um, if, 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 if this kind of scenario it comes down the line? So there we go. You're going to be asked at the end of my presentation what probabilities you give to those four scenarios. In fact, you're going to be asked which is your favorite scenario. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see what you guys uh, say. What about South Africa? Well, the first scenario we offer our South African clients, we call Premier League. It's where we stay in the 59 nations which are listed annually in a survey called the World Competitiveness Survey that comes out of Switzerland every May. We should rank between 30 and 35 because we are the 32nd largest economy in the world. 
But last year we were 52, and this year we're 50. Uh, and the reason given is policy uncertainty, uh, meaning that foreigners are fearful about investing in South Africa. So we are in the relegation zone of the Premier League. And there are three scenarios. The first is we get our ducks in a row so that we get back into the middle of the Premier League where we rightfully belong. We're the only African nation listed in the Premier League at the moment. The second is we don't get our ducks in a row. And we drift down into a scenario that Chantal and I call second division. It's where we join the bulk of the third world. Poor but peaceful. <laughs> and yes, uh, we'll still survive. Uh, but for the government, it'll be a disaster because they won't have the tax revenue uh, that they uh, had in the Premier League. And certainly they won't have access to international capital. Just when Eskom needs another 500 billion rand for its next generation of power stations, and if you believe the figure, we need 750 billion rand to sustain our water supplies. So it's a chronic scenario for government. We could even be kicked out of G20, because Nigeria will overtake us to become the premier economy in Africa by 2020. Um, it's two-thirds the size of us, and it's growing at 7% per annum. We're growing at 3 so there's a differential of 4 And we could be kicked out of BRICS the New World Club. Uh, we've joined as the fifth member with Brazil, Russia, India, and China. It could become Brink. <laughs> and that will be a huge uh, um, dip for our national morale. If the flag of violence goes up, we move into a scenario called failed state. It's where we join the likes of Libya, Syria, uh, Afghanistan, uh, Somalia, where people simply don't invest. Uh, because of the unpredictability and violence. Now, there's nothing like the level of violence uh, that is going on in Syria at the moment in South Africa. So we only give a 10% probability to a failed state scenario. But we're up from zero a year ago because we have four subsidiary red flags for a failed state and one tendency. A tendency being something that is not just an event, it's there. It's like Japan is has a tendency to have earthquakes because it's in, a, in an active zone. And uh, I'll come to that one tendency that we have. The first red flag is nationalization. When we ask our major trading partners how they see it, and they say it would be totally retrogressive, and anyway, how is the ANC going to pay for it? Um, it's a trillion rand just for the mines if they pay fair value. A trillion rand for the banks. Well, a trillion rand is the national budget of South Africa. So you'd have to borrow the money. Our national debt to GDP ratio at the moment is 36%. If you added 100%, it'd be 136%. So it puts us in the same classification as Greece. We think the ANC have reached the same conclusion despite the ambiguity at the Mid-Rand conference recently, and therefore that flag is down. The second flag is a clumsy implementation of national health insurance which leads to a decline in private medical care in this country, which triggers an exodus of talent, yet again, from South Africa. And yes, we think the Minister of Health is conscious of this. He's, he's actually talking to all the major uh, players in the private sector, such as Mediclinic uh, Net, uh, and Netcare, uh, in order to minimize the disruptions caused by NHI. Uh, so that flag is done. The third flag is the one we give a 10% probability to this scenario. It's 
a media tribunal with punitive powers. And when the secrecy bill came out, we immediately jumped to 10%. Because, yeah, I mean, undermining the independence of the media in this country is as bad as undermining the judiciary. It'll lead to an explosion of corruption. And, yeah, and we will be seen overseas no longer as a thoroughly modern democracy at the tip uh, of Africa. And there are still clauses in the bill which make us just, yeah, terrified. I mean, a journalist can go to jail for 25 years for being in possession of secret information, not even for leaking it, just being in possession of that secret information. I mean, how many crimes do you go to jail for 25 years uh, in South Africa for? Uh, we think it will totally intimidate journalists in this country, and therefore that clause has to be scrapped or modified. The, the, the tribunal has been turned into a commission, which makes us feel a bit better, but until we see clarity on what a secret is and other things, we're going to hold to our 10% probability on a failed state. The last flag is the most toxic of all, land grabs. Would you believe it, Chantal and I did a two-day strategy session in January 2008 with ZANU-PF. Uh, we didn't fly up to Harare. We asked them to come down to South Africa. So we had a two-day weekend workshop at the Saxon Hotel. Not shabby. <laughs> And yes, we had cabinet ministers, we had the Reserve Bank, we had senior civil servants. And on the, we didn't have Uncle Bob. Um, on the second day, one of the civil servants made a remark that opened Chantal in my eyes big time. He said, in retrospect, the land grabs were a mistake. <laughs> he said, we had an economy growing at 7 to 8% per annum for most of the uh, uh, 90s. We were the fastest growing SADC economy. That first land invasion, we didn't slow down. We hit the wall. And we believe that South Africa will just hit the wall if land invasions happen here. We will be immediately uh, linked to the country to the north of us in terms of our prospects. And it will be over uh, in terms of the game. And, yeah, the whole point of identifying a flag is to keep it down. And we feel very strongly that we need an agridesa, a sort of ag agricultural equivalent to a codesa, where you get the big farmers together with the emerging farmers and the land bank and, and, and also government and unions together to negotiate a reasonable program of transformation of land ownership in this country, which never happened in Zimbabwe, which is why the pressure built up. We still think that flag is down at the moment, uh, despite the level of farm murders uh, in South Africa. As far as the tendency is concerned, we this really comes from two strategy sessions that I did, one at the end of last year with the American Embassy in Pretoria uh, on Southern Africa and the other with the British Embassy. And on both uh, clients I said, did you foresee uh, the Arab Spring? And they both said no. It was an unknown unknown. It wasn't on their radar screen. So the second question was, what were the flags you missed? And they gave me the same flags, same three flags. They said, number one, abnormally high youth unemployment in all the countries uh, featured in the Arab Spring, combined with active social networks, combined with growing alienation uh, from authorities by young people. And guess what? We have all three here in South Africa. So we are one random event away from our own version of an Arab Spring. And when people say to me, but South Africa is a democracy, Syria is a dictatorship, 
My answer is, just look at what happened in London last year when there were two days of total mayhem. Uh, and yeah, you can't say that uh, Britain is not a democracy. So, you know, again, what are we going to do to keep the flag down? What are we going to do in the short term to make huge inroads into youth unemployment in this country? We only give a 10% probability to that scenario, but I have to say that some of the companies we're doing work for give a much higher probability to failed state, and so they are taking action. Uh, one agribusiness in the Limpopo province has bought one of the largest farms in Vietnam. <laughs> and they're going to grow avocado pears because they've done the market research to show that the Chinese are switching from rice to avos. <laughs> And they want 50% of their income to come out of this farm in the next five years. That's their foxy response to giving a higher probability to our failed state scenario. But we put it on one side, and we're left with Premier League second division. And we have three flags for deciding whether we're going up in the Premier League or down into the second division. Number one is inclusive leadership. We looked at countries that have done well in the Premier League and invariably they have leadership which brings them together as a nation, the minorities, and the minorities feel part of the same team. I mean, I hate to say this as a Chelsea supporter, <laughs> we did win the Champions League <laughs> and we did score the two final goals for Spain, but Manchester United is got the best manager. I mean, Alex Ferguson keeps Manchester United united and that's why they win the trophies. And it's the same with nations. You want, to, you want to stay in the Premier League, you've got to stay united. And unfortunately, whilst Nelson Mandela, we would absolutely define as an inclusive leader, uh, we haven't really had an inclusive leader since uh, Nelson Mandela. The second major flag is around pockets of excellence. Where we have pockets of excellence, and use them to raise the performance of the entire nation. Good flag. If we dumb down our pockets of excellence, terrible flag. Take schools. We have 28,000 schools in this country, of which 5,000 are reasonable to excellent, and 23,000 are dysfunctional to shocking. If we use the model of the 5,000 schools to raise the performance of the 23,000 schools, good flag. If we dumb down those 5,000 schools, probably the worst flag of all in terms of our long-term competitiveness. The third major flag is around creating a balanced economy, an outward economy that earns us foreign exchange to pay for our imports, and an inward economy that creates jobs. As far as the outward economy is concerned, there are three spaces where we can earn a lot more foreign exchange. Number one is resources. Despite the decline in gold and diamond production, we're number one in platinum, chrome, manganese, lots of high-grade iron ore, lots of coal but we really should add value here before we export them. The second is tourism. We're a cheap destination now, and we've never used the immaculate way we ran the World Cup as a way of, uh, of improving our status as a tourist destination. Namibia last year ran a campaign in Germany that they were value for money compared to Switzerland, <laughs> and it led to a huge increase in German tourists over the Christmas period. We have never done the same thing for South Africa. The third space has been the gateway into Africa. I know it's a tired phrase, but we are the most advanced economy in Africa. It's why Walmart is starting its campaign in Africa, here in South Africa. We should be inviting as many multinationals as we can to, to start their campaign in South Africa, um, because it will definitely benefit our economy. 
As far as the internal economy is concerned, we have one flag. And for us, this is the most important of them all. It's our attitude to small business and entrepreneurship. We looked at the two biggest economies in the world, America and China. And whilst they're totally different, they share a passion for entrepreneurs. And I had lunch with a young woman whose father is very closely connected to the Chinese Politburo. And she said the one thing foreigners miss about China is that Deng Xiaoping unleashed the entrepreneurial spirit of China in 1978. And she said, whilst we've had all this stuff about state-owned enterprises and foreign investment in China, the real driving force to get us to number two in the world is, and I use her expression, constructive economic anarchy. She says, you just go to any town outside um, Beijing or Shanghai. People just wheel a deal with one another. They're now entrepreneurs. I mean, I saw a statistic in this weekend's press in South Africa that 10,000 clothing shops in South Africa are now owned by Chinese entrepreneurs. Um, elsewhere in Africa, you'll see Chinese entrepreneurs everywhere. It's what Keynes, that great British economist, called animal spirit. <laughs> what, what Deng Xiaoping did was unleash the animal spirit of China. Here in South Africa, and I'm sorry, I've, America, we all know how they treat their entrepreneurs. Look at all the encomiums given to Steve Jobs. Here in South Africa, we have an ambivalent attitude to entrepreneurs. I saw in Raul Koza's interview last Sunday that the word entrepreneurship was not mentioned once at the policy conference of the ANC in Midrand. Not once. The National Planning Commission virtually ruled out entrepreneurship uh, in its document. It was all about infrastructural uh, investment. The DA, <laughs> I've seen a document about how you create 8% per annum economic growth. The small business comes in at number four. <laughs> what we're saying is that it should be number one in South Africa. We have a parallel universe economy. We have the, what we call the U1 first world economy, and we have the U2 second world economy. You ask any bank economists, which is the fastest growing township economy in South Africa, they wouldn't have a clue. If you ask them how fast Soweto economy grew last year, they wouldn't have a clue. The whole of South Africa is geared to the U1 economy. The ANC is, the unions, unions are absolutely U1 <laughs> uh, economy, uh, in, in the economy. Uh, they actually don't want the U2 economy to exist <laughs> uh, here in South Africa. And yet, you go to Nigeria now, it's the U2 economy that is really uh, turning Nigeria into probably the showcase of Africa. I mean, I had a friend who returned uh, the other day. He said, the future of Africa is no longer Johannesburg, it's Lagos. I mean, do you know that Lagos now has the second largest film industry in the world? Uh, it goes Bollywood, Nollywood, <laughs> and then Hollywood. We don't have that. We simply don't have that. It's just not on the radar system of the government. We run this parallel economic universe in South Africa because we're a highly concentrated economy. Back in the 1880s when you had the diggers, you had the U2 economy. Then it turned into a U1 economy with the concentration of the mines. And it's been in U1 ever since. 
Look outside this hotel. Look outside Santon. You don't see the kind of stuff you see in Lagos or Hong Kong. Lots of people wheeler dealing with the pedestrians. You don't see pedestrians. <laughs> uh, you know, we're light years away from creating a U2 economy at the moment in South Africa. Nevertheless, we give a 50% chance of remaining in the Premier League and a 40% chance of going down into the second division. If you combine the 10 for failed state, we're 50-50 between the positive and the negative scenarios. And as Chantal and I say, we're at a second tipping point. The first tipping point was in the early 90s when we could have tipped into civil war, but we didn't because we had Cadessa 1 and 2 to negotiate a new constitution and have a reasonable election in 1994. We now need an economic Cadessa uh, where we really address this parallel universe uh, economy. And we need all the major players uh, at this economic Cadessa. I'd like to end up with one story of a pocket of excellence to leave you, you know, on a high, because I know that some of this has been depressing. <laughs> I was the chairman of the Anglo-American Open Scholarship Panel for 25 years, and we interviewed the brightest students in South Africa for one open scholarship to university. And in 2008, we interviewed the brightest student we've ever had in front of our panel. This guy was 17 years old. He got eight straight A's in matric when he was 16. He got a scholarship to St. John's College uh, when he was uh, 15. He comes from Umtata, and his name is Siubalela Zuza. Some of you may not know, but one of the greatest sporting achievements this weekend, uh, besides Ernie winning the British Open, um, and besides South Africa beating uh, England at cricket, was the guy who came second in the Tour de France uh, is a South African. <laughs> He's now a Brit but he is a South African. Uh, his name is uh, Chris Froome, and he went to St. John's College, <laughs> and he came second. And he'll probably win it next year. Everybody thinks that Chris Froome will probably win it next year. Anyway, getting back to Siubalela, uh, we asked him, what degree have you chosen and why? He said, I've chosen chemical engineering at UCT, and the reason is I developed this passion for chemicals when I was 12 years old. I started mixing them in my mother's kitchen, causing minor explosions to our utter dismay. And then I focused on a project which was to create a rocket fuel that was more energy intensive than the stuff NASA uses to propel its rockets into outer space. And it took me two years. I cracked the formula. I assembled a South African team. We built a rocket. I put in my fuel. We beat the South African amateur altitude record. The project was entered into the Eskom Science Expo for that year. We won the award for technical innovation and the award for the best project of the year. He was 16 when he won those awards. He says, one of the prizes was to be sent to Sweden to meet the King and Queen of Sweden and to attend the Nobel Prize-giving ceremony. And the opportunity arose there to enter the largest junior science competition in the world, which is held annually in America under the auspices of Intel. Not only did I win two awards in that competition, the organizers were so impressed by my field that they sent it to the Lincoln Laboratory, which is affiliated to NASA, who promptly named a minor planet after me. <laughs> <laughs> Now, how many of you in this room know that a 17-year-old black South African from Umtata has a minor planet named after him by NASA for the advances he's made to rocketry science? And when we rang NASA up and asked them <laughs> to confirm the story, they said, not only did we give this young gentleman the award, it's probably the first time in the history of NASA we've given a foreign student an award. Now, can you imagine if it had been a Canadian schoolboy, British schoolboy, French, German schoolboy, Australian, Japanese schoolboy, he would be a household name in his country of origin. Here in South Africa, nobody's heard of Siobalela Souza. 
They've heard of Julius, <laughs> but not Siobalela. Now comes the crunch. Three months after awarding him the scholarship, he comes running up to me at ORT and says, Hey, Mr. Santa, remember me? I said, See, I'm never going to forget you. How's UCT? He says, You haven't heard. So I said, No. He said, Harvard University have awarded me an open scholarship, so I'm going there in the fall. So he's now in his fourth year at Harvard. He's had an outstanding academic record. He's studying nanotechnology now. At the second last launch of Endeavour Space Shuttle last year, he was the official guest of NASA and shown around the entire facility with two other guests, Barack and Michelle Obama. Uh, when Michelle Obama came out here last year, the US government flew him out to do the speech in her honor at the embassy in Pretoria. In other words, he is a superstar in America. Here, he is an, an entity. And it speaks volumes for the difference between American culture and South African culture. Because in America, they worship individual excellence. In South Africa, we tolerate mediocrity. We're like Australians. <laughs> we cut down the tall poppies when we should be using the tall poppies to raise the other poppies in the field. One of my great heroes is Steve Biko, because he said it before anybody else. Before he was cruelly murdered in the 70s, he said, handouts do not improve your self-esteem. Doing it for yourself does. And that's as true today as it was in the 70s. And if we want to create a viable U2 economy, it can't be because we have 15 million people with handouts. It's because we have 15 million entrepreneurs. So I hope I've entertained you. I hope that I've, for those 31% who didn't know what hedgehogs and foxes are about, that you now know the difference. Somebody asked me the other day, can you ever turn a hedgehog into a fox? Answer, retrench him. <laughs> uh, you absolutely can. There, 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 there are books. Uh, we've got, we've summarized, we've got what, the whole three, all three of our books into one called the Fox Trilogy, to which we've written a forward, summarizing how we changed the methodology over the 12 years that we've done uh, these uh, sessions. There is a website, mindofafox.com, um, but I would just Google two words, mind fox, because we are number one in South Africa for that. Uh, we're number one everywhere in the world. In America, we're number one. Uh, Megan Fox is number two. <laughs> yeah, and uh, Google said the other day, we're in the top five strategy websites now in the world. Um, so it's great. I mean, it's really great that you can take an idea in South Africa and spread it around the world, which you couldn't do 30 years ago because you didn't have the internet. Now everybody is one click away uh, from your idea. As far as the global scenarios are concerned, I think that that initial comment made about a sort of Japanese type future being the favorite, flatline, uh, where people have to accommodate uh, that flatline future is for us the favorite scenario. But obviously watch the flags for the, for the other scenarios, particularly the fork lightning. As far as South Africa is concerned, we are still in the Premier League, but we must do everything to keep the other flags down and to in integrate the, the U1 and the U2 economies in South Africa. And lastly, I'd like to leave you with a benediction for all of you in this room because you actually are incredibly important in so many people's lives. May the fox be with you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Okay, shall we start with a question, and then if there's any specific questions, but let's start by, you know, let me test the wisdom of the audience. <laughs> there you go. I see zero out of 150. No one's voted yet.
It wasn't working. Okay. Alas. Well, shall, shall we take a couple of questions before running it? I have to say, it should be lightning rather than the lightning of your hair products. <laughs> it's <Clem>. lightning. <laughs> Clem? Yes. I've got a question for you. Um, yeah. And it's about your four global scenarios. So you've outlined yeah. hard times, ultraviolet, new balls, please, and fourth lightning. Yeah. But each of these uh, scenarios presumably has different political consequences. Yeah. So, for instance, I mean, your hard time scenario, if you've got uh, 20 years of low growth, 40% youth unemployment Absolutely. in Europe, yep. um, goodness knows what kind of youth unemployment you've got here, um, and China, I don't know very much yep. about China, but presumably the youth unemployment is a problem there too. Yep. Um, that presumably has big political consequences for, you know, the, the, the democracies or lack of democracies in these countries. Yep. Uh, with a consequent redistribution of resources, etc. Okay, et that's okay. That, yeah, look, hard times. Absolutely correct comment. Is lots of political analysts are now using our hard times, the idea of a 20-year flat state, to explore the political consequences. We're just not political scientists, so we don't know. But I know that youth unemployment in a place like Spain at the moment is 45%. That's 18 to 24 years old. We're 50.2. So Spain's very close to us, and you kind of say, how does a society continue to exist with that level of youth unemployment? So please, we're actually saying to people, you know, take our scenarios as a base and work out what the political consequences are, because you might actually find that it's not a sustainable scenario if you look at the political consequences. Yeah, well, last time we needed a war and a holocaust and, you know, 40 million yeah. lives to get out of this situation. Um, and yeah. partly it was a political response to... Unemployment and yeah, you know, uh, the, the, we we have been asked war scenarios by several people. In fact, one of the MIT people who came out was the previous head of the scenario planning team in Homeland Security in the United States, and she was very clever. She was 35 years old, and uh, in fact, they'd done some incredible work on 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 uh, you know potential threat scenarios to the states, and obviously one of the scenarios they play is a third world war. And, uh, yeah, I just said to her, it'll be very short. <laughs> because that's the whole point of nuclear weapons. <laughs> um, you don't have to use troops on the ground. <laughs> but, of course, there is the logic, if you, you know, which is called the mad logic, mutually assured destruction. If you nuke me, I'll nuke you. <laughs> so let's be sensible and not nuke each other. And a thing like Syria is, is you know, people simply don't realize that Syria is quite different to Libya because China and Russia are very much on the side of the current regime and America and Britain and others are not. Now, I think they'll probably just let it collapse because I, I, I have to say my favorite scenario is that the Syrian regime is going to collapse like the Libyan regime. But it just means that there are more issues rising in the world where you have potential polarization between nations which possess nuclear uh, weapons. So... Yeah, you know, unfortunately, again, we, we're just not experienced enough to do, you know, th those type of scenarios. Just one point, interestingly, where they do teach our methodology uh, is West Point and also uh, uh, Sandhurst in the UK. And it's not because we, we, we put scenario planning in their heads. They've been doing it for decades because they feel part of an officer's training program is battlefield scenarios. But it is interesting that in business schools, the same uh, importance isn't given to 
uh, this discipline as it is at uh, officer training uh, courses. And as this American lady said, clam is because in war you kill people. <laughs> and in business you lose money. <laughs> and, and so it was an interesting point that uh, essentially the kind of foxy thinking that we've been recommending is being taught as, a, as an essential element of being a good leader in the military. Whereas in business, it's still very much the hedgehog approach of having a vision and a mission statement and all that kind of stuff. And sorry, one other point. We are doing work at the moment for General Electric, or at least GE Capital. And if you want a command control execution company, it's GE. They think they control the world. <laughs> and for them, wanting to do scenarios requires a massive shift in paradigm. But they do. They realize now that they've got to look at how they adapt to different futures rather than just creating the future themselves. Any other questions from anybody? Yes? Have you ever done any scenario planning for ANC? No. Uh, we've never done scenario planning for the ANC. We've done it for the Chinese Communist Party and for ZANU-PF, <laughs> but not for the ANC. But, you know, they've got some good guys. Uh, um, there's Joel and I always get his surname, it rolls off my lips forever, but Unchun Tenzi, and he's, he's, he's a very good scenario planner within the ANC. Um, so they have done scenario planning, but I guess they feel that they've got their own guys uh, to do it. But I'd love to give this presentation to them, particularly about the two universes, because I really feel that this country is a two-universe country, economic universe country, and, and we've got to somehow achieve an integration of those two universes. I mean... I, I was absolutely shocked last week on News 24. There was a guy called Youngster who, who put up a, an article basically saying Mandela was a sellout, total sellout to black people. And it elicited 1,300 responses. And if you saw the anger in those responses, you'd realize that we are in these two universes. I mean, it was just the most amazing sort of thing last week uh, on News 24. Uh, and, and, yeah, you know, most young black people, if you believe the responses on News 24, believe that they were sold out. And, you know, uh, the Constitution, in fact, is just protecting people who were in the U1 economy. <laughs> um, and there's been no effort at all to create the U2 economy further and to try and integrate the two economies. So, yeah, that's why I've kind of made, made the, the, give, give the talk that I do. Any other questions before we ask? Can we ask the question again? Oh, okay, right. Okay, well, maybe later on <laughs> uh, they can ask you uh, that question. Is there any other specific question from anybody? If not, thank you very much, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, thanks very much, Kim. Um, here's something from Cornet. And we'll let you know what, how the sort of voting goes when we sort out the technology. All right, hopefully we can catch up a bit of time on the next um, session. I'm pleased to introduce Dr. David McCarthy. He comes from a particularly good vintage at WITS. Um, he also is a St. John's boy, Fulbright scholarship and did a PhD at Wharton. Um, he worked under a couple of sort of well-known American professors within the social demography space, also worked at the Oxford Institute of Aging, and then has moved to Imperial College, where he's been running the master's program in actuarial science. Uh, David has now joined National Treasury as a consultant, 
to assist them in the insurance, sorry, to assist them in um, retirement policy. I think we all know what the, sa- the problems are within the savings industry, but few of us are brave enough to take, a lot, take on the challenges um, to try and come up with solutions to fix them. Um, it's really nice that we have an actuary close to the legislators to try and explain the problems that we see. Um, we certainly are very well represented amongst the regulators. Um, and so I thought I'd start off with a quick question. Uh, hopefully the technology works for my question. Just in terms of what it is that you believe um, we need to do to fix our industry. If you look at where the sort of policy is going in, in South Africa, I mean, I do disagree with Clem a little in terms of policy uncertainty. Um, National Treasury have been really good at signposting where it is that we're going in terms of legislative changes. Uh, we seem to be reasonably clear in terms of what those priorities are. I think, to a large extent, the press is a little further to the right than, than what the government is, and so that's why you hear a lot of noise in the system. I don't believe that there is actually the same amount of noise. Um, but if we're to move into a world that's, that includes compulsory preservation and compulsory annuitization, it's really important that government is confident that the annuity market is presenting value to, to sort of all the man in the street. And so that's really what David's going to talk about today. He's done a lot of work in this sort of space. We'll see a Treasury paper in the next matter of, matter of weeks, I'd imagine. Um, and so this gives you a sense of what Treasury's sort of research has shown. And then following the session, following tea, we'll have a debate in terms of what we think is an industry we should be doing to try and solve this problem. So, you know, the, the, the title is what, what we think you should do. And, and rather than pre- present something like that, um, I'd rather just present a, a sort of a sneak preview of our paper that's coming out, hopefully in a couple of weeks, on, on, a, on our current view of the annuities market in South Africa. So, so you know, we, we are planning to release several papers over the next uh, six months or so. Um, they sort of deal with things starting with compulsory preservation, uh, annuities markets, retirement fund costs, governance, savings. I think that's, the, the, we can never remember all of them. Uh, there's so many. Um, but, but uh, you know, that's part of a broad uh, reform of the uh, retirement uh, industry in South Africa. Um, and what I thought I would do here is just present a preview of our, of our first um, paper, which is on annuities markets. So, um, and listening to Clem, it was very interesting to me because one of the things that concern us at Treasury is the impact of low returns. And if with a 40% probability, Clem has said there's going to be no growth or low growth for five to up to 20 years, right? And unfortunately, our retirement income market appears to be geared towards much higher returns, right? And the, the adjustment process from a, a, a market that is geared to very high returns to one that is geared to much lower returns is, is going to be difficult. And it's going to be difficult for the industry to get used to returns of, for instance, last night I heard the chief economist of Vault Mutual say that he thought that a balanced portfolio uh, could return no more than 2 to 3% real over the next 10 years, okay? So adjusting from a historical market where we have 10 or 15% returns, okay, to a market where we have 2 to 3% real returns is going to be a shock for everybody. It's going to be a shock for the industry because practices that have become customary are simply are not sustainable in a world that looks like that and in, in a way that gives customers value, okay? And it's going to be a shock for uh, pensioners themselves because low interest rates uh, 
or a, a, a shift in resources in the economy away from savers and towards borrowers. So, uh, so the, the question ultimately is, is, is how do we move forward? But in order to decide how we move forward, we need to know where we are at the moment. And so our, our review just looks at, at uh, it's, a, it's, it's not a very flattering picture of where we are at the moment because there are some uh, fairly uh, in, uh, difficult problems. Um, but what I'm going to start about is talking about the current annuities market. Then I'm going to spend uh, a, a, fair, a fair time talking about living annuities. Then I'm going to talk about conventional life annuities and then suggest some principles rather than detailed policy reforms about how we can move forward. And of course, in the subsequent session, um, we're going to hear possibly, at least I hope, uh, some more ideas about more detailed poli uh, policy suggestions. But I'm just going to suggest some principles that we believe at Treasury should guide the reform. I should note that we're open to consultation. So, you know, the, uh, the, the title of the presentation is deliberate. It says, Current Treasury Thinking. Okay, the implication being that um, we reserve the right to change our minds if, if you can persuade us differently. And, you know, so please bear in mind, our, uh, we, we are always open for consultation. This paper will have a consultation period. Um, I urge you all, please, to um, participate if you feel you have anything to say. I read all submissions to, um, to that e email address, as do all the people in our team. So, you know, it's, it's not like we ignore consultation. It's a very real uh, process. So, um, you know, and industry is obviously an important stakeholder. The actuarial profession is a, is, is a national asset. So, um, you know, we're we, we keen to develop links with the actuarial profession. Um, and, uh, yeah, so please do participate. All right, so I'm sure you all know uh, what our uh, annuity rules are in South Africa. But basically, two-thirds of pension fund and retirement annuity assets must be annuitized at retirement. Unfortunately, annuities must be purchased from a life office. So whether it's a living annuity, which is forbidden by tax law to provide any guarantee at all, right, or a conventional life annuity, um, they must both be, be purchased from life offices, all right? So a living annuity in, is, it's a terrible name because it's not an annuity. Uh, it's a phase drawdown account. So it's basically a bank account that you uh, can invest in any way you choose. There are no restrictions on investments in living annuities. Um, the drawdown rate is limited between 2.5% of the capital and 17.5% of the capital each year, right? Um, and there's a wide variety of, of possible underlying assets. And then conventional life annuities, in this room, I, hopefully I don't need to explain what those are, but there's a big difference in that with conventional life annuities, there's some element of risk pooling. So um, the insurance company operates a pool of lives. Um, the product design redistributes resources after the fact um, away from people who die young and towards people who die old. And that allows people to consume some of their capital. So how large is our market? Well, the annual premium uh, in 2011, according to ASISA figures, was 31 billion plus um, in 2011. You can see how that premium has changed. Those are half years. Um, the reason I put the last year in kind of uh, hashes is because there appear to be significant reporting delays with living annuity statistics from ASISA. So um, what that means is that I, I expect that the uh, second half of 2011 will be about the same as the, the first half. So that would bring up the annual premium to about 34 billion, I think. And yet, what a very concerning trend from the point of view of National Treasury is, and we'll see why in a while, is that living annuities appear to be starting to dominate. So uh, the proportion of single premium, again, according to ASISA numbers, uh, spent on conventional annuities has fallen from about 50% in 2003 to less than 20% in 2011. 
right? And the proportion of policies which are living annuities has risen from 40% to 80% in 2011. So there's been a phenomenal shift away from conventional annuities and towards living annuities, right? And you can see from the graph on the left-hand side, the red shows the proportion of conventional annuities by number of policies. The black shows the proportion by amount. And you can see that the average size of policies um, starts off where conventional annuities are on average much smaller than living annuities. Um, but that difference in size has, has contracted, and that's what's shown on the right-hand graph, where it shows the average single premium size for living annuities um, and for conventional annuities relative to the average of both. So if there you can see that uh, the average living annuity is nearly twice uh, the size of the average uh, single uh, premium in 2007. And correspondingly, the average conventional annuity is about half, because roughly uh, the market is split 50-50. But then over time, this difference diminishes. Okay, And so what that seems to us to indicate, obviously this is it's difficult to infer things with too much accuracy from this, because we don't know how many people are splitting their policies between living and conventional annuities. So all we can observe is the number of policies. We don't know much about the number of individuals. But we infer from this that there appears to be a move uh, towards living annuities for low-income people, and that, in fact, um, this idea that uh, low-income people are predominantly purchasing uh, conventional annuities and upper-income people are conventionally purchasing living annuities is, is true. If it ever was true, it's true less and less and less. So what's happening is that brokers and, and people are, um, are selling uh, living annuities to poorer and poorer people. And yet this is, okay, so I've got a question. Let's see if it's working. Is it working? Okay, so we'll, we'll skip. But, uh, so, uh, you know, I'd be interested in your views on why living annuities are dominating. I mean, there's several possible reasons why they could dominate. Uh, the first is that living annuities allow a higher level of initial income uh, because you can take 17.5% out. They offer investment choice that might be quite valuable to some people. They offer estate protection, so uh, you can bequeath it to your heirs, whereas you can't bequeath a conventional annuity. Another reason might be that conventional annuities are overpriced for some people. Conventional annuities may be inflexible. You can't draw down if you have uh, medical crises or anything like that. Intermediaries may prefer selling living annuities um, because the commission is higher and the need for financial advice is higher. And living annuities might be more profitable for life insurers and asset managers. Um, and therefore, they, uh, uh, they push those through their distribution channels. But I would be interested in what you think is the primary reason for um, the uh, domination of living annuities. Have we got it working? No. Yeah, show hands. So who thinks uh, living, annuity, living annuities, obviously there may be more than one factor at play. So if you just uh, indicate what you think is the primary reason, or in fact, no, just indicate, we can, we, we just indicate if you think it's an important factor and you can answer more than once if you want. So who says number one? Right, number two, number three, number four, number five, number six, number seven. Okay. All right, so thanks very much. So we'll see how, how it'll be interesting to see how your views change after the presentation. One point, that one part, aspect of the review was that we sort of looked at international experience in annuities markets. And we looked at uh, countries with mature DC systems where no deferred annuities were sold to workers. Um, so that excluded countries like Belgium, Germany, um, various other places in Northern Europe, and with no intergenerational transfers at retirement. So basically what this means is that the retirement system is a, is a DC system uh, where individuals at retirement buy annuities at, at market fair prices or whatever the market charges. Um, and it's not necessary that you run things like that, but, but that's the system that we're with, and it's, it's probably the system that's going to stay. 
Um, so the, the conclusion of our international review was firstly, it's very, very difficult to create a market in private annuities. So the, the poster child of that is Australia, right? So in Australia, I'm sure most of you know, they have a mandatory system, uh, a mandatory largely defined contribution pension system. So you get substantial tax incentives to contribute. I think the contribution rate is 9% of salary. Um, you, there's compulsory preservation. And when you reach a certain age, you can start taking the money out. Now, there are no rules about how you can take the money out. In fact, Australia and the US have a system where not the minimum withdrawal, sorry, not the maximum withdrawal uh, annually is specified, but rather the minimum. So in fact, and it's an, uh, in, in Australia, it's an age-related minimum. So you have to take out more than a certain amount. You can't leave it in there. Um, but Australia last year, they sold about 20 life annuities. Okay, so most people either take lump sums or they take term annuities, but very, very, very few take um, life annuities. Another important point is that regulation is a crucial determinant of the shape of, of the annuity market. So uh, again, the US, there is no compulsory annuitization at all. Uh, once you reach a certain age, you can start taking the money out. Once you reach another age threshold, you must begin taking the money out faster than a certain rate. But there is no um, restriction on how fast you can take the money out. Any drawdowns are taxed at your marginal rate of income uh, after you reach a certain age. And so the US, again, does not have a functioning market in uh, voluntary life annuities. The premium there is about $8 billion a year, but it is uh, absolutely tiny relative to the size of their economy, okay? The UK, on the other hand, used to have mandatory annuitization between the years of 1976 and 2011, right? Up at those points, between those dates, you had to annuitize 75% of your uh, accumulated defined contribution balance before the age of 75, right? In 2011, they abandoned that policy because it was quite unpopular. Um, and then uh, now you have to show that you've got a minimum income of 20,000 pounds. If you can't show that, the rate of drawdown is restricted. If, if you can demonstrate that you have an income of 20,000 pounds, and that could be from state pensions, defined benefit pensions, um, annuities that you've purchased, life insurance policy, stuff like that, then you can draw down the remainder faster. But there's no longer a mandatory annuitization requirement. Yet because of the historical mandatory annuitization requirement, the UK has arguably the most functional annuities market in the world. Um, they sell about 450,000 policies annually, right? And as a result, they have a very sophisticated rating system, all right? So, I mean, the contrast between the UK and Australia is stark, right? Um, and you, I, I would find it difficult to argue that there's any kind of cultural difference between these two countries, right? Culturally, they're very similar. Um, and yet the one has absolutely no annuities market whatsoever, and the other one has 450,000 policies a year. Okay, there are more people in, in Britain. There are about twice as many people, maybe more than that, three times as many, four times as many people. But that, you know, it's, it, it's a stark difference, right? Paying attention to incentives at retirement is important. Chile is a great example here, right? Because Chile is one of the other countries in the world that has a functional annuities market at retirement. So what happens in Chile is that when you reach your retirement day, um, you're given one choice, right? And you choose between uh, a phased withdrawal, so what we would call a living annuity, okay, and a conventional annuity. Now, the conventional annuity that you can buy is laid, is laid out by statute. So it must have spouse's protection. Um, it must be increasing with CPI, okay? And, yeah, so and the, the spouse's protection depends on the size of your family. So if you are married, then obviously it has spouse's protection. If you're single, it doesn't, right? And then they have a computer-generated quote system, 
that will give you a quote of the top five providers, okay? And then you, uh, you presented with this, uh, this quote. Uh, you go to a financial intermediary and you discuss what you do, right? And then uh, you make a decision. And 60% of retirees in Chile choose the life annuity option. Now, that seems kind of surprising until you, until you realize that the intermediaries, uh, there's a commission, a permitted commission on the sale of life annuities, uh, which is m maximum 2% of the uh, single premium, okay? And, and yet, on the living annuities or the phased withdrawal, those are typically paid from the pension fund itself, and the intermediary earns no commission at all on the uh, phased withdrawal, okay? So uh, the phased withdrawal, the money remains in the fund. Investment options in Chile are very restrictive. You're only allowed to choose between five portfolios, and every pension fund administrator must run at most five portfolios, and they must span the risk-return space, okay? So none of this 900 different options that are given to individuals. Individuals have a choice of five different options. Um, and, but importantly, um, the, the, the pension fund administrator doesn't charge people for living annuities, okay? So, so the incentives, it appears to me at least, that uh, what's what, one of the factors that's driving that choice is the, inter the intermediary incentive at retirement, and we need to pay very important attention um, to that, okay? Taxation policies are also uh, crucial. These are already largely in place in South Africa, so I won't talk more about that. One other country we did look at was Sweden, where I don't know if many of you know this, but they uh, reformed, they went, underwent a substantial reform of their social security system in the 1990s, and they replaced an old pay-as-you-go defined benefit system with a combination of a notional defined contribution system, which is basically an unfunded defined contribution system and a funded defined contribution system, okay? And then uh, they, they, they said that on the funded portion, which is, I think the contribution rate is about 3% of salary, so it's not very much. But um, they said that on the unfunded, on the funded portion, uh, annuitization is mandatory, right? Um, and the, there is a monopoly provider of annuities, um, and that is a, a, a state-owned uh, company. But, it, but it, what it doesn't do is sell annuities on the balance sheet of the government. So it, it takes in the assets, it runs a portfolio. They're what we would call variable annuities or with profit annuities. Um, they're not rated at all. They don't rate by... Uh, they don't rate by sex, so men and women pay the same uh, price for annuities. And uh, if investment returns turn out well, um, then they'll grant uh, investment increases. Now, of course, in Sweden, they're not a very religious people, but I heard someone say once that the Swedes do have a religion, and it's called the state, okay? So, you know, they have a tremendous faith in the ability of their public sector. Um, it's probably not faith that's shared in South Africa, so probably for, uh, for in many cases, some good reasons. Um, but certainly we put it on there because of the uh, important example that it highlighted. Of course, Sweden is not the only government that has sold annuities. Uh, the, the Canadian government sold annuities until 1971, and the British government sold annuities to finance the Napoleonic Wars. Of course, they didn't realize they should rate annuities. So it's a, it's a funny story because um, at that time, the, the longest-lived people in the world were Dutch girls. So, and they didn't charge a different rate for the annuity depending on how old you were, or whether you were male or female, or indeed whether you were British. So syndicates bought these annuities on the lives of Dutch baby girls um, and ended up uh, imposing a substantial cost on the British government. And so since that time, they have not sold annuities. But in, from, from the point of view of the government, annuities are just a way of borrowing money. I mean, you know, and if you get your assumptions right, um, then uh, it's, just, uh, it's just borrowing money. So in principle, the government could do it on its own balance sheet as well. So what is our living annuities market? Now, 
you know, from your point of view, probably you think a living annuity is a very simple product. You know, it's just a bank account, right? You can invest it how you want. You have all these choices. But think about it from the point of view of someone who's retiring, okay? Now, this person, uh, probably this is the, the, the largest financial asset they've ever had in their lives, okay? Throughout their lives, um, they've been protected from making many choices, probably, uh, for, for most people. So we have a retirement system that protects individuals uh, while they're working. How does it protect them? Well, we give them substantial tax incentives. Um, membership of a fund is compulsory as a condition of employment if the employer has one. The, the uh, contributions are deducted from salary before the individuals ever see their salaries, right? Investment choices are often made by a group of trustees rather than individuals, right? And there's serious limits on what they can do with the money. So you can only access the money under current law uh, if you leave your job, right? Or you retire or you die. So the system works to protect people, all right, while they're working. And then suddenly, when they reach retirement, right, the vast majority of people in our system are effectively abandoned, right? And they're abandoned to the retail market with the largest asset they've ever seen in their lives, okay, and with very little experience or training on how to manage such a large amount of money, right? And you can think of it from the point of view of those people, what a living annuity looks like. And it looks very, very complicated. Why does it look so complicated? Well, they've got to make some pretty important decisions, right? So what are the important decisions that people have to make? Well, firstly, they have to decide whether to buy a living annuity or a conventional annuity. I mean, my dad is, is currently, he's scheduled to retire at the end of the year. So I've been doing some mystery shopping with him and going to speak to financial advisors. And to say that I'm shocked is an understatement, all right? Because many of these guys don't even mention conventional annuities, all right? Um, and my dad, you know, he's a pretty risk-averse guy. So I think from, from his point of view, a conventional annuity might, at least it's an option and it should be presented, right? But these guys don't even talk about them, okay? So, so firstly, you've got to decide whether to buy a living annuity or a conventional annuity. And for many people, that choice isn't even apparently presented. Um, secondly, uh, you have to decide how to, which provider to buy the living annuity with, okay? And that has a consequence for the level of service you get and the, the safety of your assets and various other things. Thirdly, you have to decide what to invest in, okay, right? And for most people, the vast majority of people, even in Britain, don't know the difference between an equity and a bond, okay, right? So you can imagine what it's like in South Africa, uh, you know, presented with these, these portfolios that have no idea what's going on in these portfolios, and yet they have to decide how to invest it, okay? And finally, they have to decide on a drawdown rate, right? Now, getting any one of these decisions wrong could have profound consequences for these individuals that only become apparent in many years' time, and after which point they're effectively irreversible, right? Okay? So, and furthermore, each of these decisions needs to be reviewed, right, regularly. So you can't, it's not enough to choose a provider and then sit back, or to choose an investment strategy and then sit back, all right? So to say that living annuities are a complex product is, I think, a, a fair statement viewed from the point of view of individual retirees, right? Second issue is high and layered charges. So broker fees, they're around 1% per annum per plus VAT. All the brokers I've spoken to in my mystery shopping expeditions have said that it's standard in the industry, that credible people all charge 1% per annum, okay, right? Um, in fact, some of them even take the rebate for themselves, right? So the investment managers pay rebates and the brokers take those. Um, the platform fees, around 50, 50 basis points per annum, plus VAT, possibly slightly more than that, right? And then on top of that, 
the investment management fees of around 1% per annum plus performance fees plus VAT. So if you add all of those up, you're getting to something that's, that's in the region of 25 to 3%, right? Now remember what we said earlier about what Clem's future is for the, for, for the country or uh, Rion LaRue, who's the chief economist of, um, of Old Mutual. What is a, the real return on assets and a balanced portfolio going forward? Well, it's about 2 to 3% per year, okay? In other words, the charges on these products alone, all right, are chewing up all of the real investment return and leaving, plus after that the individual has to finance the drawdown. This is even before the drawdown. So these charges significantly reduce the level of income that's possible. Now, there I've just done a very simple uh, calculation. It shows the permanent in increase in income possible relative to a the theoretical account with no charges. Okay, so this says, well, if, if I had this level of charges that's on the left-hand side and an annual drawdown rate that's along the top, if I invested the, the, the money in, a, in an account with no charges, what increase in income could I obtain that is permanent? In other words, it's sustainable forever, right? And look at that. I mean, the, you know, if, if the charges are between 25 and 3% and the annual drawdown rate is 4 to 6%, and that's about that's barely sustainable. You know, 50% of the income, the, inc the individual could raise their income by 50%, right, simply by going uh, in, into policy with no charges. Another way of saying it is that the, the charges of the product are consuming a third, right, of the income that the individual can draw. Another way of saying that is that the individual could reduce the contribution rate they made throughout their working lives, right, by a factor of one-third, okay, and obtain the same income if they manage to invest in a living annuity product with no charges. So these apply to the reduction in contribution rate um, that you would need over your entire working life. Okay, all right. So um, so that's these are pretty serious numbers. All right. Now let's talk a little bit about investment choice. So most living annuity policies offer substantial investment choice, like you know I don't know 500 different portfolios possible maybe. Right, but most living annuity policies are invested in a few portfolios. So in my mystery shopping, all right, the financial advisors all pretty much recommended the same portfolio to my dad, okay, right? And the portfolio looked pretty much like this, which is what we got from a CESA representing some kind of average portfolio in living annuities. So, you know, 40% uh, in equities, a little bit in property, some in bonds, and 40% in cash. And it's a nice kind of balanced portfolio. Now, if and industry sources have told us that roughly 80% of living annuitants are invested in a portfolio that looks pretty much like this. So if that's true, why on earth do we offer investment choice to individuals? Because we all know that investment choice adds to cost, right? How does it add to cost? Well, firstly, you've got to pay platform fees. Secondly, there are indirect costs to, due to moral hazard, okay? So why is it moral hazard? Because there's a strange set of relationships between the investment managers, the platform managers, and the intermediaries, okay? And once you allow investment choice, then these strange sets of relationships, some of which are financial in the form of rebates, right, probably bias investment management charges upwards, okay, so they add to cost in, in, in our view. Um, and furthermore, they increase the need for financial advice, so because you need someone to monitor your portfolio, right? Uh, if you don't have investment choice, you don't really need someone to monitor your portfolio. So uh, at least that's what the financial advisor can tell you, how much monitoring they actually do I honestly have no idea. I've yet to experience that particular um, issue. All right, so let's move on to the distribution channel. So brokers are selling fewer and fewer conventional annuities. Somewhat unsurprising because conventional annuities have a commission cap at 1.5%. 
living annuities generate commissions of up to 1.5% per annum, right? So if you are a financial intermediary and you have a choice between selling a living annuity and selling a conventional annuity, right, you will sell, you, if you sell a conventional annuity, you get 1.5% per annum, uh, sorry, 1.5%. If you sell a living annuity, you get 1.5% per annum. In the Treasury paper, we've, we've calculated what proportion of the wealth of individuals that translates to, taking into account their mortality and likely investment returns. And it depends on the drawdown rate and the um, level of charges, obviously, but it's around 20%. So, um, so in other words, you know, if you retire with a pension pot, if you're very fortunate in South Africa and you have a pension pot of, I don't know, 5 million rand, and you go to a financial advisor and you purchase a living annuity, something like, you know, 15, 20% of that money lands up in the form of investment, paying for investment advice, right? Is this a sensible way to run a retirement system? Right, then we get to drawdown rates. And unfortunately, drawdown rates make uh, the product risky. So uh, we have, uh, CISA kindly provided us with a, a, a distribution across the industry of drawdown rates by age. I've highlighted in red all the drawdown rates that are above 4%, okay? And uh, so that, that's a distribution. So it's 4% of the policies, and this is by policy, not by brand amounts. So the median policy has a drawdown rate of about 7.5% per annum plus fees. Okay, so we don't know what the median fee level is, but 2.5% looks about reasonable. So that is a, a, a gross drawdown rate of about 10% per annum. In a world where real investment returns are 2 to 3%, according to the old mutual economist, all right? going forward. So this, these drawdown rates are, you can see immediately, posing quite serious risks for individuals, okay? The average policy has a drawdown rate of 9.5% per annum, but the question is, well, what's sustainable? So Treasury, we built a model to see what was sustainable. And our conclusion is that uh, a substantial fraction of people who purchase living annuity policies are going to face real falls in their income, okay, right, while they're still alive. So what we did was we did some uh, did a little calculation. We assumed the 7% drawdown rate, the average investment strategy that we've seen there, um, 500,000 initial balance, a 4% per annum real return after fees, a 12.5% annual standard deviation of return, so it's roughly 50 equities, 50 bonds, and it produces a confidence interval that's a 90% confidence interval of monthly income that looks like that. That in income is in real terms, so I've adjusted for 6% inflation. Um, and the, the median income is the red line. So half the time the income they draw down will fall below that and half the time it will fall above that, assuming that they never change their drawdown rates, okay, right? And then what we did was we took those uh, particular profiles and uh, we added to that a mortality table and we used the South African annuitant mortality table from 98 plus improvements. But we don't know whether this is a reasonable reflection of the mortality of living annuitants because we can see reasons why it might overestimate the mortality and we can see reasons why it might underestimate the mortality. Um, but it's the best uh, thing we've got. And, there what we, and then what we did was we calculated what using the distribution of age and drawdown rates that we obtained from a CESA to calculate what the, what, proportion, what the chance is that a randomly selected living annuitant will see a 30% fall in real income before they die if drawdown rates are unchanged from current levels. And it's two-thirds. So our current retirement system has 80% of uh, people retiring, buying products that if they're used in the way that they seem to be used at the moment, face, gives individuals a substantial risk, right, of real falls in income while they're still alive. And then what we've done 
is we repeated that across the horizontal axis uh, for different falls in real income. And you can see that roughly 95% of people, there's a 95% chance that a randomly selected living annuitant will face some real fall in income before they die. Um, a 20% fall in income, roughly, according to our modeling, and if these assumptions are correct, um, roughly an 80% chance, um, and a 50% fall in re real income, roughly a 50% chance. So there are substantial, according to us, according to our analysis, there appear to be substantial risks in this living annuity system, right? So our findings are, it's a complex product. There's a high need for financial advice. There's a high and layered charges with complex rebates, performance fees, etc. Investment choice adds to costs for all, but only used by a few. Recurring charges rather than initial charges increase costs significantly. It's amazing how many of these financial advisors are very quick to tell you that they don't take initial charges, right? And they, they expect you to be relieved, right? Yet I know, they don't know that I know this because I don't tell them who I am. Uh, they don't realize that I realize that initial charges have very little effect for long-term products on the, the final amount you can take from the product. It's the recurring charges that really cause the damage, right? Um, and individuals appear to be selecting drawdown rates which are too high, right? Exposing them to substantial risks of real falls in income while they're still alive. You know, and I mentioned that our current retirement system protects individuals um, in many ways. I listed some of them, right? And yet here we have a living annuity product that appears to play in to the psychological biases to which individuals are subject and which cause suboptimal long-term behavior. So there's an immediacy effect. So people like income in the hand, not in the, not in the policy. Um, <clears throat> there's an illusion of skill. So I was extremely disappointed as a diligent treasury official to hear Clemson to revise you all to pick stocks. I would, as a treasury official, I would advise the exact opposite. Evidence on stock picking ability by portfolio managers is very poor, right? Um, they can't detect the winners in advance, okay? Um, most portfolio managers underperform appropriately cho chosen benchmarks. So while I agreed with a lot that Clem said, if I, if I can just put in my little uh, 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 stump pitch about that. So there's this illusion of skill, right? That people believe that they can choose uh, investment policies that either outperform the market or they can time markets by entering into different asset classes at appropriate times. It, the evidence on, on, certainly on stock picking is very poor. The evidence on, on market timing, DB pension plans in the UK actually lose money because of market timing. Um, I don't know whether financial advisors in South Africa are slightly better at it, but I doubt it. All right, and individual tailoring of these products, in fact, turns out to be remarkably homogenous. So, now of course, there are reasons why individuals might buy living annuities and have high drawdown rates. They might be ill, right? They might um, have other sources of income that we are not aware of in this particular um, analysis. Uh, you know, they, they might have a small policy and they just want to get the money out, right? And they're relying on their spouse or various other people to look after them. And they may rely on their family. So, you know, this is, the, the important thing to note is that these numbers that we've got here, we don't know what the other assets that people have are. They may well have other assets that we're not aware of. However, from a regulatory point of view, the reason we give tax incentives to the retirement industry is because we want it to produce a lifetime income for individuals, right? And from our point of view, the, the, the pension should be the last asset, and we should regulate it as the last asset that people have, right? And if people have other portfolios that they want to uh, adjust, they can always adjust their portfolios outside their living annuities and, and achieve various things on that, such as higher, higher, higher initial consumption, or a particular investment strategy 
or anything else. All right, so those are our findings for living annuities. We think it's pretty depressing, but um, if you guys can, can find any flaws in our analysis, please let us know. Um, we'd be very happy to, uh, to, to find them. So, you know, it's a bit distressing, all right? Now, conventional annuities, on the other hand, have great advantages, you know. Um, they protect individuals against the risk of living too long. An important facet of a conventional annuity that's underappreciated is that they allow individuals to protect bequests against living too long. So if you retire with a pension pot of 5 million rand and you decide that you want to leave 2 million to the kids no matter what, okay, you can use 3 million to buy a conventional annuity, conventional annuity and then no matter how long you live, right, you'll leave 2 million to the kids. So there's this idea that conventional annuities are unpopular um, because they don't allow you to bequeath money, right? However, appropriately chosen conventional annuities do allow you to control your bequests in a much more precise way um, than a living annuity does, all right? And furthermore, uh, they allow individuals to consume capital before they die. So what you can do with a conventional annuity is because of the risk pooling, um, where individuals who die early are basically passing their capital on to individuals who live for a long time, what that means is that you can consume your capital and the, the, the rate of consumption is much higher than it could be under a living annuity where you have to, in actuarial terminology, reserve for the possibility that you might live for a very long time. And as a consequence, you leave an unintended bequest. Right, so what we've got here is using real quotes um, that ASISA uh, gave us on level and inflation linked annuities. Those are the gray line and the black line. And then taking the median income paths from our living annuity policies, which are the various red lines for different drawdown rates. This shows the real consumption path in rands per month for this hypothetical individual with the 500,000 rand um, retirement balance. And you can see um, that the, uh, the conventional annuity, which is the gray one, outperforms all of the living annuities until the age of 86, right? However, of course, it does not leave any capital. And the, uh, the various living annuity portfolios show, uh, 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 as does the level annuity, show a decline in income. And of course, uh, if you live past the age of 75, um, then the inflation-linked annuity uh, provides the, 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 the biggest income. But of course, these, uh, these graphs ignore the, the different bequests that individuals are leaving. So um, obviously, if you buy a living annuity policy, you're able to leave a bequest. If you buy a, one of these conventional annuities with no guarantees, um, then uh, you are not leaving any bequest. So, you know, they have great advantages. One issue in South Africa is we sliced and diced the annuity market here in many ways. And besides um, the recent uh, entry to the market of some a small company that does rate by uh, occupation, the dominant rating structure does not rate other than by age and sex. And that's a big problem in South Africa where we have a huge degree of heterogeneity in our population, right? Um, we have huge levels of inequality, and those translate into differences in life expectancy at retirement, okay? And that uh, introduces uh, uh, cross-subsidies. The fact that our annuity market doesn't rate, other than by age and sex, introduces socially suboptimal cross-subsidies from the poor to the rich. So, however, I've mentioned that conventional annuities aren't bought. There are various reasons, and as I've said, it's an international problem. I've been instructed to hurry up, so I think I'll just hurry up. But anyway, we've discussed all of these issues. So broadly in South Africa, uh, the fundamentals for a functioning market in life annuities appear to exist. So we have a broad range of suitable assets. Insurers tell us that at the long end of the curve, 
There may be more granularity that's required, especially for CPI-linked annuities. Uh, we have a competitive insurance market with many large players. We have effective insurer solvency regulation with few defaults historically. And mortality data exists, although there may be insufficient disaggregation by market segment in existing data sets, and that's important for annuities. And there are potential remedies for that, including possibly using the experience of large South African pension funds suitably adjusted. So why is it a problem that the market only adjusts annuity prices, uh, only prices annuities by age and sex? Well, the, while the average purchaser, according to our analysis, gets reasonable, reasonably good value and probably better value than with living annuities, so the, the standard way that value for money is assessed in annuities is to look at the expected discount at present value of annuity payments right, and compare that with the price. And for level annuities, um, the average purchaser choosing the best rate gets around 97% of their money back in expectation. So these appear to be fairly priced products, assuming that there is a small risk of company default. Um, obviously, the larger the risk of company default, the less the expected discount at present value of payments. Now, the average, because of the large degree of heterogeneity in our population, poorer people get progressively worse value for money with life annuities. So the average GEPF retiree who bought an annuity, according to our calculations, uh, would get about 95% of their money back. Um, the average member of an industrial fund in South Africa would get approximately 87% of their money back, and the average member of the population would get around 77% of their money back. And the fact that the market doesn't rate according to life expectancy, other than by age and sex, is, is what is causing these transfers of wealth right, from poor retirees to wealthy retirees. All right? And of course, it's important to note that these figures are for level annuities, and 90% of the people in South Africa apparently purchase level annuities. These figures are less for escalating or CPI-linked annuities, so we need to adjust those slightly downwards. Um, so it's it's a it's it's a it's a big problem, and you know one of the the, the, the factors that, that we as Treasury need to consider when setting our policy is the extent to which the market rates. So because of these uh, perverse uh, cross subsidies. So our findings for conventional annuities are that the proportion of purchases has fallen to roughly 20% of retirees, according to CESA data. Um, we believe that there may be significant distortions caused by distribution channels, um, in particular for the high recurring advice fees paid to brokers who sell living annuities rather than to those who sell conventional annuities. Of course, once you've bought a conventional annuity, you never need financial advice again, right? You never need to make another decision, ever, right? Whereas with living annuities, you've got all of these complex decisions to make, and those require advice, right? Um, there's significant short-termism and myopia in the purchase behavior that we've observed. Uh, most purchases apparently by level annuities. However, level annuities appear to be fairly priced on average for those who purchase them, less so for the poor, the ill, and those who purchase uh, escalating annuities. So is the system working? Right, so here's my, fir my first and last question, and that is, so overall, our current, our current retirement income system, who thinks it's fit for purpose as is and working as well as can be expected? Right. Who thinks it's in need of small regulatory changes at the edges? Who thinks it's in need of fundamental repair? Right. Okay. Well, that's very encouraging because I think that's the view at Treasury as well, um, that it is in need of fundamental repair. So um, that's a very, very good outcome. I'm very pleased to hear that. So what are the principles guiding our suggested policy suggestions? Well, we want to increase the level of automation. So, you know, uh, this idea that individuals get a, a, a huge amount of money that's bigger than any amount of money they've seen in their lives and with no experience are expected to, to make sensible financial decisions with the advice of people who are paid by product providers, I think, is uh, idealistic, okay? 
So uh, one way of getting around this would be to increase the level of automation, all right? So that things happen automatically, and the right thing happens automatically, and doing the wrong thing is difficult. So there are various ways this can be achieved. The way that we're looking at is in or out of fund defaults. So, you know, something like a fund default, we, you know, given the, the session that's coming, um, I'd be very interested to hear what the speakers have to say about inside versus out of fund defaults. Um, I'm not sure we have a view on that particular issue yet, um, but, you know, we're very interested in what you guys have to say. Uh, we would like to increase the level of longevity protection. We are not of the, of the view that the current system that the, the levels of longevity risk to which South African retirees appear to be exposed is, is optimal. So we would ideally like to reduce the level of that risk. Um, exactly how we achieve that, we don't know. Again, uh, we think what we'd like to do is to require a greater degree of compulsory longevity protection than currently. We, again, we, we don't know exactly how much or how, all right? And again, we'd be very interested in your views on that, all right? We want to reform living annuities. Uh, and we want to reform them in a way that tries to ensure that behavioral biases work in a way which is consistent with the interests of members. So we know individuals struggle to make financial decisions. Um, and we want to, to try and, and use the product design exactly like the retirement system that we have is built. In that, uh, you know, it's basically the, you know, pension funds are, a, are a mech an economic institution designed to surmount the behavioral difficulties that individuals have with saving. That's why they exist. Okay? And we want to try and do the same thing um, with living annuities, to try and fix the products so that they help individuals uh, rather than uh, do things that appear to be the opposite. And one possible thing to, to try and get around the uh, annuity option is to allow the government um, to sell rated conventional annuities or to try and encourage the private market to rate annuities so that um, the cross-subsidies from the, the poor members of our population, who are many, right, are to, towards the rich of fewer. So um, there'll be more detail on all of these issues uh, in the discussion document to be released shortly. Again, um, you know, Treasury, we, when we say we consult, we mean it. You guys are a very important constituency. Um, you have a lot more expertise than we do at the Treasury, on particular, and you have a lot more experience and knowledge about how the industry works. And so your uh, views in our consultation on these issues is, is extremely important. Um, and so please, I encourage all of you individually if you wish, or through uh, your employer or through a CISA, to please participate in the consultation. Because, and if we're interested in your response, we'll, we'll come into you can come into Treasury and have a chat. So please, we do mean it. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's it. So thank you very much. Thank you.